0: Boy, it's just getting worse and worse. That you guys tolerate this is pretty amazing to me. Um, When we, let's start. When we, when we, when I first started thinking seriously about doing Jane Austen, I remember um, trying to put her in perspective. And part of what would have increased the richness of what she's done in our case, was our awareness of Moby Dick and Dostoevsky. Because in both Moby Dick and Dostoevsky, we saw an Enlightenment world taking over. So in Moby Dick, Melville is dealing with um, a decayed Protestantism, the, the, the corruption of some of the dogmas that entered the world in the Reformation. Predestination, particularly in um, the private will and how iron it can get. The major doctrines were um, critiqued in a tragedy. I mean they're all laid bare. And it's America. So in Moby Dick we're seeing a picture of um, our Protestant beginnings in what I believe is a partly prophetic work. You already know that. In Brothers Karamazov we saw something in time um, lining up with it because Dostoevsky was dealing with all the European Enlightenment ideas that were moving into Russia so the same Enlightenment ideas that were moving through Europe and America were also moving, in, moving into Russia. But in, in Russia we had an ancient world that had not grown up in Europe. We were a product of Europe. So when we, when we broke off from England, we were still acting out of Western principles. Freedom, independence, the Magna Carta, that's all our past. That was not so for Russia. Russia was a part of an ancient world, Holy Mother Russia. But Peter wanted to um, help Russia come into the modern world so he introduced all these ideas and overnight you get all these Enlightenment ideas infiltrating Russia and we saw the effects of them in Dostoevsky. Is everybody with me? So we had the benefit of having two works that sort of located us in history. Jane Austen's not on that landscape. I wasn't going to do her (laughs) out of some stroke of insanity. I agreed to do it. And one of the things that I said was it's interesting to look at her in this case because what happens with Jane Austen that I'd never quite seen before is with Jane Austen, we have the last embers what's the, do the residue um, what's left of a Catholic worldview that's already disappearing with Shakespeare When you look when you read Shakespeare we know we're in the beginning of the Renaissance, the modern world remember when uh, look um, the few in um, um, All's well that ends well. The play that we read. When he said, "The age of miracles is past." Helena performs those miracles. Nobody expected them. They're outraged when they see them. That age is gone. Miracles are gone. We've entered a modern scientific world. Shakespeare knows it. But in every one of Shakespeare's comedies, as we know, except *Taming of the Shrew*, which I keep thinking that I'll do, um, every play has a woman and a central figure. The, the heroes are heroines. Every one of his comedies except taming. Every one of his comedies and every one of his comedies ends in marriage except taming because it begins with the marriage. Is everybody following? So for Shakespeare the the end of virtue, the end of our natural life is virtue and goodness and marriage. The highest virtue in the Christian Middle Ages was love. Not justice, as it was for the pagans or the Jews. Not justice, love. And we know from Christianity that love is the fulfillment of justice because Christ doesn't separate them. He did nothing against the law. Everything he did was to fulfill the law, to be just. But he brought to it a divine mercy. So this is all repetitive, okay? Bear with me if you would. Okay, so the last great work looking back to the Middle Ages is Shakespeare. End of, the, um, so end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, Jane Austen writes these five novels. Every one of them has a woman as its center and every one of them ends in marriage. What she's doing is taking love as her theme, showing we were meant to love and be loved. And that love is completed in a relationship in a marriage, and we know how troubling marriages are today. There's no support for marriages, divorces, um, contraceptions, um, homosexual, same-sex marriages, trans. I mean, love is so desecrated in our world. So there's little support for marriage. I mean, what, so in the modern world, we have to we have to hold on to our view about love. But we know that we're in a view that challenges it everywhere. So we have real struggles in our world. Jane Austen's writing then, okay? So I want to start with that. I'm reading John Donne's poems because John Donne lived at the time that Shakespeare did and he's writing the last body of poems devoted to the interior of man's life. I've only picked out those poems dealing with with virtuous love but he's covered the whole range of our interior life. The one thing that separates Elizabeth and Jane among the characters in um, Pride and Prejudice God. Sorry. Is the richness of their interior life, their, interior, their interiority. Mrs. Gardner is a wonderful woman we know, we know less about her interior than we do Jane and Elizabeth's, right? One of the beauties that Austin gives us is that we enter into the interior life not of men, not in the tragedies, women. So my claim was she was the last great artist to look back to the Christian Middle Ages on the threshold of modernity where we will not see that thing again. Name a woman artist who looks at women this way who treats women this way who looks at marriage with the importance that she does she gives it you won't find it so this is a rare chance for us to look at things going back um, at a time when they were changing so they don't it doesn't they, her works don't belong with Melville or Dostes. but in one sense I hope you can see their relevance why it's turned out to be a sort of unexpected grace that we could read her here I'm gonna blow you away, I think, next week with some of the claims I'm gonna make. And I had not been prepared to make them, but that's where we are, okay? So we're reading Dunn, he precedes Austin, but the poems that we're reading all have to do with love. And remember, the lyric always gives us the interior of the person. It's not drama, we're not looking at the outside, the exterior. Through lyric, we always go to the inside of somebody. Usually it's men, um, but the lyric shows that it can be a woman, you know, a woman writing lyrics. But. So this is John Donne's poem, The Anniversary. And notice, because Jane Austen, um, to go back to what I claim that I'm making, the love that Darcy and Elizabeth come to, and in some degree lesser, but still there, Jane and Bingley, that love is a critique of every marriage in that book. She is critiquing that world, laying it bare. And she does it, she does it in a, in a wonderful, I'm going to say, she does it with a sharpness of mind that's rare among men or women. She's so penetrating. And she does it with a depth of charity that's rare among authors. It's not a brutal, it's not a condemning, it's not an icy, judgmental, She's exposing the world, but she does it with this amazing spirit, understated ironies and charity. It's a wonderful spirit. You won't find it anywhere else. Bob, what, what is
1: so, the title of the John Don poem? The Anniversary. The
0: anniversary. Yeah. So Donne's Anniversary, <laughs> it's a critique of the external world through the eyes of a man declaring his love for his beloved. This is their anniversary. Hence the name, the title, anniversary. Okay, All kings and all their favorites, all glory of honors, beauties, wits, the sun itself, which makes time as they pass, is elder by a year now than it was when thou and I first one another saw. All other things to their destruction draw, only our love hath no decay. Everything else in the world is wrong. That could be a description of Pride and Prejudice. Only our love hath no decay. This no tomorrow hath nor yesterday. Running it never runs from us away, but truly keeps keeps his first, last, everlasting day. To graves must hide thine and my course our bodies. If one night Death were no divorce. Alas, as well as other princes, we who prince enough in one another be. We are all things in each other, he's saying. Must leave at last in death these eyes and ears off fed with true oaths and with sweet salt tears. But souls where nothing dwells but love, all other thoughts being inmates, then shall prove this or a love increased there above when bodies to their graves souls from their graves remove. And then we shall be thoroughly blessed, but now no more than all the rest. Here upon earth we are kings, and none but we can be such kings, nor of such subjects be. Who is so safe as we, where none can do treason to us except one of us too? True and false fears let us refrain, let us love nobly and live and add again years and years unto years till we attain to write three score. This is the second of our reign." Beautiful poem, no? Is everybody okay? Follow it. Any comments? Brief before we go on? Heather? Say it's hard to hear say again. I, it's me, it's not you. from within yeah so
1: just, Yep. For the
0: day. <laughs> yeah just to back up what she's saying I mean what can hurt you no matter what the world does if you have your love with another um, poverty wealth. I mean if that love is genuine I mean and that's the subject of Dunn's poems and Shakespeare's comedies because most of the heroines are in exile you know what can hurt you if you have that love, let the world do what it will. But don't let that love slip. Don't let that love slip. Um, okay. Let's start Jane Austen. I want to offer a couple of um, opening reflections that are like the general sort of broad stroke reflections that I start with. A couple here. And one of them is going to be strange and I'm not going to press on this but I'm going to come back to it um, um, next week when we finish Pride and Prejudice. On the way here I asked Suzanne if she could make a link between um, Elizabeth and um, Mary. her comments to me were remarkable. They usually are. And then at the end when I was sort of taking off from them, she was raising a doubt whether I was trying to bring Christian principles into this and and if you, I think I can honestly say I really struggle not to do that. Um, But I wanted, I'm gonna raise a couple of questions here. Last week before Christmas The last image we had in the readings for the Mass was of Mary um, in the Annunciation. The angel came, said you will bear a chun, a son. Her words, let it be done according to your will. Mary was saying, meet my conditions first. I will love you when, or I'll do this when, or when I get this, or under these conditions, or this is the way. She was saying, whatever your will. And she didn't know it then, but she was opening herself to her son's death that she would have to suffer. So whatever any woman says, nothing will compare to that because no woman, no woman had to bear God. She did. And she was given help with the graces she was given. But that let it be done unto your will defines Mary. I hope everybody's in agreement with that, that that... And the, the problem that that presents to women, I think is not small. How many women do that? Um, one of the last images in that reading was of Mary um, reflecting on what had taken place. Now stop and think about this for a minute. The reading was, she, she reflected on what she was given. So the image we have of Mary, one of the last images going into Christmas is, she thought about those things. So she carried within her all that was happening with her. And the image we have to have of her is, she went through her life teaching her son the law. Can you imagine a day going by with Mary not teaching her son the law? There wasn't anything else. And she was told she was gonna bring God into, and the child that she would bring in would be the ruin of nations. So we've got this image of Mary thinking about things. She just didn't go on. She carried this stuff, she had to think about it. Imagine a mother doing that through her life, not taking things for granted, okay? Um, Thinking about, carrying them like a child, bearing them so they'd be fruitful, all of it in the direction of a cross. So as we go through Pride and Prejudice, I I know this is gonna seem a stretch, I just wanna leave you with that image of Mary because the, the woman, um, who does the introduction, introduction is um, giving a reading of Pride and Prejudice along feminist lines. I happen to disagree with them fundamentally. I don't want to go in. You've got my notes on them so you can read my response to her in the back, but her reading of um, Elizabeth is that Elizabeth is a um, the prototype of the modern feminist. That she's a product of the French Revolution and the way in which it changed the lives of women so that women could now be political figures. So I want you to contemplate this question. Are we to see Elizabeth in political terms? Politically conscious so that political conventions or social conventions of her world directed her in these writings? So this is about the independence of women or not. Is there actually something closer to Mary? And I know that's gonna sound polemical, That it sounds argumentative and sorry for that but I can't help it. As you read through this book I want you to ask yourself is this a prototype of the modern feminist? Is Jane Austen affirming what the modern feminist will do in the stands that she takes or is there something else going on? So I'd like everybody to keep that in mind um, and remember, the Catholic Church, um, and I gave back, Pride and Prejudice is not in my mind then. A couple of months ago I gave you the image from the um, Theology of the Body talk we went to, in which they made the argument, which I think was justified, that this, the Catholic Church is defined by marriage. It's a spousal love. It's the father in the Old Testament already looking to his children and giving us Christ and Christ calling into being his bride. The Bible ends at the end of Revelation, it's the bride calling, come, come to the bride. And you know about Christ, all of his parables dealing with marriages were central. So the defining image that runs through the the New Testament, Christ came to recover the chosen people. They rejected him, he goes to the Gentiles, and we've got the groom calling his bride and you know about all the parable the guy who didn't come properly dressed the ten bridesmaids five of whom are all set up something's wrong these women have all the all the outward appearances of ready to for the marriage and they leave and they're not let in so we've got a really important distinction between two groups of women all of them are prepared for the marriage all of them so five of them have the externals they're going through something but clearly something's missing they don't they're not there and christ will not let them in when they knock so the image of the bride the, the church of christ his the groom calling us what he's calling us to are central to our church jane austen was anglican her father was a rector she grew up in a christian household there were all sorts of problems with some of her family members some of the men going off and doing, you know, I mean it was not an easy family life. Um, But she's dealing with marriage and she's making the center of her books, The Consciousness of a Woman Struggling with Her World. And the claim that I'm making right now, that I will back up, is that everything in this book is critique of all the typical ways of looking at marriage because there's something wrong with them. The church has always defined itself in terms of marriage. It's at the center of our life. And it discourages divorces, but the church in its wisdom, and I want to say this emphatically because I think most people have a wrong idea of our church, um, it makes a place for annulments. It takes very seriously Christ, um, who Christ joins, let no man part, The church makes a place for annulments, for separations, because they recognize that people do stupid things in the beginning. So the whole criteria of annulments go back to what happened in the years leading up to the marriage and the marriage. And on that basis, they'll either support it or not. They'll ask the people to be true to their vows or separate. So the church is not black and white. Its wisdom is amazing, but it takes love and vows and commitment to Christ, seriously. So just hold on to that. Okay. There's nothing explicit. There are these allusions to Easter. One of the events will happen at Easter in the third book, but or the third volume. But so um, just keep those in mind when um, when you're reading the book. Okay. And um, I want to go back to that opening um, that opening statement. Um, where is it my goodness um because i um i don't want to answer the question right now but i want to put it out in front of everybody you remember that the book opens with that statement um, oh i've got it Doug. i'm gonna go thanks you keep it thank you this is the statement that begins the book It is a truth... Oh, sorry, Mike. you having trouble hearing me? Sorry. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I'll read it again. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However, little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of someone or other of their daughters. Okay, to whom does this opening statement apply? Before we begin, I just want a quick answer. I don't, because I want to get to the book as quickly as I can. But to whom does that apply? Anybody?
1: Bingley?
0: Bingley? Go ahead that's who they were talking about because he was the one who just came into the neighborhood with a great fortune. Anybody else? I was going to say Mr. Bennett because the first thing she thinks was him and everything obviously there. Yeah. Yeah. Does Bingley say anything in the first half of the book that makes us conscious that he's interested in wife and looking and actively pursuing or I don't think so. Mrs. Bennett comes immediately to mind. Who next? Come on. Name the women.
1: Lucas.
0: Lucas, yes. Lucas, yeah. The
1: younger daughter. The younger
0: Wait, wait, before you could. Get... Mrs. Lucas, I am gonna read the passage. When Charlotte gets married, because the the Mrs. Bennett and Mrs. Lucas are rivals. Mrs. Bennett thinks she's better than Mrs. Lucas because her um, um, Collins proposed. Her father wanted nothing to do with that man. He said, um, if 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 um, Elizabeth were to marry her, him, I'd never talk with her again. I mean, he, So, I mean he's having fun with his wife, but she was gravely disappointed when Elizabeth refused Collins. And when um, Charlotte accepts Collins, Mrs. Lucas feels that she's triumphed over Mrs. Bennett. So there's a real rivalry between those women on getting their kids married. And it's interesting that she uses the word property. You know, he's the he is the property of whatever woman um, that he is considered the rightful property of someone or other of their daughters. Um, who else? Connie, kind of, go ahead. Oh,
1: three younger
0: daughters. For sure. Yeah, they're,
1: they're all about finding a rich man. Yeah,
0: yeah. or or an exciting man that will, yeah, yeah, give them what they want. The So Mrs. Bennett to me is the sort of a pity man, (coughs) but Mrs. Lucas for sure, the two daughters, we could go on. Um, But it's just another way of reinforcing what I was saying earlier. Um, That's a typical attitude. Women want their daughters naturally to be married. But the question is, what's the spirit behind that desire? Is it love? How much of it is getting a husband that will make a wife happy? Or a wife who wants to get, I mean, keep using that word, to get a husband. It's like something you you capture or get a hold of. Or, you know, um, This attitude um, that, and particularly in Mrs. Bennett, that women have to be well settled and the only way they can do that is through marriage. And that means they have to marry somebody who can do that. Even Mrs. Gardner, who is a remarkably good woman, warns Elizabeth off from Wickham because she said he's not got enough property. That's her concern. Um, She's not concerned about the moral side of him, and, and we're already beginning to suspect him. It's not because he lacks wealth. It's because he's a morally compromised person. And Gardner wouldn't know that. I mean, Elizabeth comes to see it in time, but... So the point that I'm making here is that Jane Austen is taking on that attitude and it's pervasive. The attitude towards marriage in this in this um, society are rigid, fixed, and hypocritical in what she's offering us in, in um, Elizabeth and Jane. And listen to this. Neither Jane nor Elizabeth are trying to get a husband. And I'm saying that emphatically. Jane falls in love with um, Bingley not because of anything he's going to offer her, He's enchanted by her because of her beauty, her goodness. And and we know that even emphatically because he leaves. So it's not like he wants to marry or get proper. Or, so however we look at his motives for marrying later, it's not to get a woman, a wife. And that's true of Elizabeth. Does she want to get a husband? She denies Darcy. She denies Collins. After she gets the letter from Darcy, she is humiliated and, and we watch a woman growing from everything that happens to her afterwards. At the end when she marries, is it because she knows she's making a good match and she'll be economically well taken care of? Are those her motives? No, they're not. Couldn't be farther away. Those are not on her mind at all. Or she wouldn't have refused Darcy. Lots of women would have said, sure, because Darcy's wealthy and, So Jane Austen is challenging all the views And if you relate it to what I've said about the first volume, everything she does about that first volume is to show us the the foibles. Everybody in that first volume, including Elizabeth, is parodied. We see how foolish their views are everywhere. They're all foolish. Every one of them. They're making judgments, coming to conclusions based on impressions, and so often those impressions are wrong and everything that happens in volume two after Darcy proposes and refused, we're not dealing with impressions anymore, we're dealing with people suffering from the actions, the choices they make, and their learning. So that's why the novel was first titled First Impressions and she changes it to Pride and Prejudice. So in the first part we're watching people um, making judgments all the time and being wrong. And then we're watching the results of that unfold in, in volume two and finally coming to what I think is an amazing marriage in um, Elizabeth and Darcy at the end, okay? So let me stop with just those opening thoughts. I'd like you all to keep Mary in your mind. I would encourage you to read the introduction by the feminist, see what your response is. Which one is it? It's um, the um, Penguin edition. What's her name um, Vivian Jones. Let me, let me just say this to you, too. When I first recommended this, I asked everybody to get the Tony Tanner edition. He was the editor that I read ages ago when I first thought. He, he was the Jane Austen go-to person. Um, he, he's done wonderful. His, his introductions to me are remarkable. <coughs> but the feminists they had to put somebody in to be current and that's what they've done. Initially they included the Tony Tanner um, introduction at the end and they even advertise it that way. We ordered it and it didn't come. I mean, it didn't come with Tony Tanner. If, so I would encourage you to look at um, Vivian Jones. She's the editor of the Penguin. If you can get a hold of a Penguin edition or an edition with Tony Tanner and put the two introductions together, you get a, a very clear, you become aware of a real difference in the way people read books. okay let's get into the book um, you remember that volume one ends with um, the news correct me here because I'm help me not talk if I volume one ends with Collins proposal to Charlotte being accepted and um, Mrs. Hurst feeling um, superior to mrs. Bennett because she can claim now her daughter's marrying mrs. Lucas mrs. Luke, sorry, mrs. Lucas um, so book one ends um, with mrs. Um, Bennett losing all hope she's distraught the great hope she had of Elizabeth marrying and a, a man like Collins who in her eyes is this great match and Elizabeth declines um, her um, her mother doesn't want to talk with her anymore. She wants to disown her. Her father says that if she married him, um, um, she would d- disown his wife. I mean, it's, you know, it's that like sort of a comic. Um, the differences in the way they look at marriages are so different. And, um, but the, the one thing that I wanted to point out that was present in my first notes, remember, that in volume one, Jane Austen deals with three, what I'm going to call three fields of experience at Longbourn, It starts in Longbourn when Bingley comes into the neighborhood. Then we go from um, Longbourn to... um, What's the Bingley... Netherfield, Netherfield, thanks. Help me here. Um, Jane goes there, you know, but (laughs) on the advice of her mother in the rain because she wants Jane to stay there because she wants to get Jane married. God! Um, Jane ends up getting sick and staying, and Elizabeth goes to stay with her to console her. So we go from Longbourn to um, Netherfield and then, um, and then we go to the militia in Meryton and uh, where we meet the Phillips and we become aware of the gardeners who are in London. So we're going to an even larger world. So what Jane Austen is doing is starting in, with a, with in the domestic field of consciousness of a family. We move from that to Netherfield and from there to Meryton where the balls take place and on, on the threshold of London and the Gardeners and the Phillips and those groups. Is everybody clear? So, um, and, the, and I want to reinforce that now. It's been interesting to me to reread this again because I didn't see this earlier. Every volume is complete, has a completed action in itself. It doesn't end arbitrarily. It's a completed action. It's a sonata form. Its form is musical and I'm I I wish I could you know I've been saying this forever that all all works of art have a musical center even a novel when it seems to go everywhere. The lyric is clear because it's in poetry. This is lyrical. Every volume has its own completed action. Something happens in it that sets it off. So you could say about the first volume, it's the first voice. This is in a sonata. And it's got different tones, all of them, the different women, the different families. Um, Netherfield has a different tone, and so does London. But it represents a completed action because it shows us Elizabeth refusing Collins when through that marriage the entail would have been taken care of. So a real threat to marriage is left suspended over the Bennett's hands because of Elizabeth's refusal of Collins. It's so clear to get this. Elizabeth's actions keep her family in danger. That's not a concern for her. And somebody could say, Mrs. DeBerg is gonna say, you selfish woman, in the third volume. She's gonna say, she's gonna call Elizabeth every name Selfish, self, you know, conceited, arrogant. All the things she
1: kind of is herself. Yes. Sorry. All
0: the things she. Is. Yeah. Wait till we get. I don't want to. Yes, but I'm holding off on her. But is everybody following? The first volume has its own action. It ends with Collins marrying, or the the marriage set. So a marriage is realized all all set of expectations, at least somewhere, should be settled. Not for Mrs. Bennet because she was defeated. (laughs) Um, Hearst beat her to it. But has everybody seen? So there's a completed action, but in it, what Elizabeth has done has kept her family in jeopardy. So what we're made aware of in the first volume is the importance of marriage and the importance of something cruel and inhuman in entail because Collins has that family under his thumb. As a matter of fact, he counts on that when he comes to make the proposal because he's assuming, he, he wants to present himself as doing the Bennets a favor. That arrogance in his proposal. So is everybody clear? That's a completed action. The second volume will have its own completed action. So if you remember the, the, in the first one I gave you these three boxes to show those three fields of growing, expanding awareness, but Elizabeth is growing as she, as she moves out of her world. Um, And then in three, if you look at my notes, you'll see that once again I've given you three fields of action. If you've got my notes, if you can look at them for a second. So in volume two, the structure is um, Colin proposes, he's refused, um, the Gardeners invite Jane to London to lift her spirits, she goes to Huntsford. So um, the world of the Gardeners enters into the world. Um, Elizabeth goes to Huntford's in Rosing, it's there that um, she will visit her friend Charlotte, see how the marriage with Collins is going, and it's there that Darcy will propose to her and she'll refuse. She returns home. Um, these, This is in chapters 37, 39. She returns home, leaves Hunsford. She goes to pick up Jane in London. Jane and her sisters and Elizabeth go home. OK? Is everybody OK? But at that moment in that scene, when they come home, um, um, Mrs. Um, Forrester, Colonel Forrester's wife, invites Lydia to go to Brighton where the regiment is gone. Lydia leaves, leaving Kitty in despair because she couldn't go. You can imagine two sisters, why does she get to go and I don't? <laughs> and Lydia goes. Is everybody clear? Um, Jane has sorry, Ty. Elizabeth speaks to her father about not go. Yeah, and where's Jane? Is everybody cl- clear? Jane went to London to be with the gardeners because they were trying to lift her spirits. So we're moving out of the family field once again to larger fields where the women through and the reader become aware of larger worlds. So increasingly, Elizabeth is learning. She's the center of awareness. And a reader who's paying attention is learning with her how to see what's going on, okay? Section two ends with the gardeners inviting Elizabeth to join them in a tour of Derbyshire, where Darby has his estate, Pemberley. She goes with misgivings, she's, she, she, we're gonna go through the, she receives a letter from Darcy that really humbles her, and she's a little bit anxious about going to Derbyshire because she knows Pemberley's there, but she's assured that he won't be home. So book end book two and volume two ends with off to off to Derbyshire. And and I love it because we're left I just she's the master. We're left wondering what will happen. Truly. It's a it's a wonderful detective story. It's a wonderful romance. A little all set to go. Um, what will happen? So we're left hanging wanting to read to find out. So, the first volume is the first voice. The second is a counterpoint. We see the marriage um, between Charlotte and um, Collins and we enter into Hunsford and Rosings and we experience De Berg's life. That, That is, she's an image of an old landed way of life. Her husband left everything to her. She's got everything the way she wants. She is overbearing in everything she does with everybody. Her daughter is weakened by the effect of her. So Jane Austen is showing she is showing us the foolishness of Lydia at one end. And the absolute arrogance a woman is capable of when she's given that kind of power. Because I'm gonna claim she's the worst figure in the book, even worse than some of you may disagree. She's an awful, awful. Creature. So Elizabeth enters the world of that old class aristocracy and meant to feel its effects then. And we know that Darcy descends from that. Is everybody following? So we are entering enlarged fields of experience and growing in our awareness of the world and what's not quite right with love. Is everybody okay? So if that's a quick summary, I'm glad for anybody to fill in the spaces here because what I want to do is just give a summary. I want to get into the text and look at passages now. But if I've left something out, feel free to... But what I want everybody to see, this book is absolutely musical at its core. First voice, counterpoint, resolution. There's a tension between one and two. We've entered a world just like a sonata. And in the third movement is a resolution. And we come to something we can't find anywhere else in the book.
1: I like it when she first sees Beverly through the trees. She says, I Can't you think I'm too up
0: in them. Mistress of all this, yes, yeah. <laughs> Which, go ahead, all sir. All of us, I mean, anybody who's ever
1: said no to something, there's someone at you all. Know, you stand back and you're like, wait a minute.
0: <laughs> See, the goodness is she didn't care. And what I love about that passage is I think it increases her humility. Yes. It deepens it because she's under... I mean, what Darcy's got his faults, for sure. But she's not... he's not the same person anymore, and she's not. So when she looks at the then, there's a sense that her humility... I'm going to say, her humility doesn't stop growing. From the moment of Darcy's letter, through everything that happens, Lydia, her family... In fact, I'm going to read a passage that's just going to be shameful, but... I think that's a moment where her humility continues to grow. You know, she has got a deepener deepened sense of what she's lost. And it's it's it, to me it, it is amazing. Elizabeth has never set out to have that, and lots of women would have in this book. Keep that in mind. Jane Austen's dealing with something nobody else in this world in, that she's critiquing is dealing with. She's showing us there's something wrong with these marriages, that there, there can be a better life in a marriage. It's an amazing book. Okay, any comments about the structure? She's helping us to grow up, if I can put it that way. Even when I'm 80, I'm failing. I'm 80, and I put down this book thinking, I didn't see this 80, you know, 60 years ago, when I first, I didn't see it 40 years ago, and all I could say was, bless your soul, bless your God, to, to learn to see the depth with which sees see these again and learn. Because I don't think anybody can read this book without being convicted. <laughs> we all carry faults and she's just laid the, and in this one, what I'm gonna call this wonderful spirit of charity. She not, I mean her treatment of characters is so understated when they, when they are, lots of them are not nice people. Wickham's not a nice guy. Jane is too nice. She's ready to be too nice all the time. So, she's helping us to see to become better people. It's an amazing, amazing writer. Anybody else? On, on just what I'm calling the Sonata form, Volume 1, Volume 2. Because what I want to do right now is look at some of the things in um, the, in the book. Unless you have questions. I'm yeah. About, about Darcy
1: and what you said about Jane, I mean Elizabeth changing. To me, Darcy changed first. He saw the error in his ways, he acknowledged that in his letter, and I think
0: it was only because of that that Elizabeth changed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, take that letter out of the book and you don't have a story. Mm-hmm. And because. That's what I yeah, why?
1: <laughs> There's not going
0: to be any sexist statements in here, Mary.
1: <laughs> Dorothy is, is a, I think, a difficult um, character to understand because he does you know, everything that he says is so arrogant. And then, it's, you know, once he he writes the letter, then you start seeing. But but I think in in our society we will call him now like shy. He's too shy. I think you know. He never wants to dance. He's too shy when there's other people. You know, yeah. When he writes, he can express himself better,
0: I think. And remember, he takes pains at. Oh, no. right. Sorry, Mike. Say it again. He
1: never makes small talk.
0: Yeah. The other thing to remember about Darcy, and i would say that if you look at the social world we're in, how um, what's the word? Wickham's a, um, a gold digger. What's the word I'm looking for? It's particularly women you know, looking to be married, um, but Jane Austen doesn't let them, I mean Wickham's out for four, he, he wants to marry into fortune, so... It, wait, wait, let me, the, the, the one thing to keep in mind with Darcy, predatory is the sort of word that, I, that people are, they use each other as property. Jane Austen is looking at a world, social world, that s- sees other people as objects. and I I say in that respect it's absolutely no different from our world that's we we have that same every age has had to face that We we do in our age Um, that word that world is predatory and marriage is at the center of it people by nature are meant to be together that's our nature but she's showing us what happens when people don't use good judgment or they don't learn or the one thing I think to keep in mind with Darcy is he's got a lot to protect against a world that's so, can I, Carolyn Bingley, there's no way he can miss what she's up to. I mean, I, we should have included her, she's not married, but, but she so clearly wants to marry him for the wrong reasons. And he cannot, he, he has to know that on some level. But I think it's really important to keep in mind what he has to lose, he has more to protect than other people, and I, I want to say this in, on on his behalf because I, I agree with you, Mary. Um, when you set him next to De Burg, she's a witch. I mean, that's his past. So the, the the decision that he makes, I think, asks more of him in the way of giving himself than Elizabeth, because he not only takes care, he faces everything that's shameful to Elizabeth, Lydia. He does everything he can in secret to protect their respectability and still not become like Lady de Bourgh, which I think he could easily do. So Darcy's, I mean, I think you're right, Darcy is a, he's a, there's so much buried in his character, you know, that we can look at him on surfaces and be quick to make judgments, What's amazing to me is that she does such justice with him. He has such a strong sense of justice that he writes that letter. So he's still defending himself. He's still making clear to her that she's wrong. But he's been humbled by her refusal for sure. But he cares enough about justice that he doesn't want to leave her. He doesn't want to leave himself accused of things that he's not guilty of. Um, There's a lot there. Um, here, unless and, and any other comment. Go ahead. I just wanted to say the comment. You... Speak. speak right. It's just not you, it's it's my hearing.
1: Yeah, I wanted to say with the comment of Darcy being the one who makes the first move to after you change and Elizabeth following. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're both prideful, they're right? yes. both very intelligent. Yes. Assume everyone else around them isn't very intelligent. They're yeah. also both incredibly prejudiced. They make an assumption about something. Darcy will at least claim to
1: the fact that he is prejudiced. He says, my good opinion looks lost. It's right, right. He, he openly <laughs> admits that. Yeah, Whereas yeah, Elizabeth does she yes, she yes, that
0: does. yes, both yes.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. which is very much what Darcy is, and that is something that I think is such a great step forward is that Darcy is willing to share more with Elizabeth, especially about something that's very delicate. That's over the book. I think you see a shift where Darcy becomes slightly more
0: outgoing and Elizabeth learns to be a bit more Well, he's forced out of himself by what she does,
1: yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth yeah. learns to be a bit more reflective. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Next week when you come, you bring bread. (laughs) What can I say to a comment like that except something, a non sequitur like that. Um, Yeah, it's really, yeah. yeah, yes to everything you're saying. And it's interesting to me, Jane Austen is keenly aware of differences between men and women. She's not a feminist. There, There are fundamental differences between men and women, and you've nailed some of them. It's really interesting too that as a man, he has enough of a sense of honor to be honest about things that are not like his comment about once my what do you say once my good value of an, his loss has gone forever you know he has a um, a manly sense of being open concerning matters of honor there's a truthfulness in him that and it's more remarkable because he is much quieter he's more protective Elizabeth she's light bright witty ready to engage truthfully. Um, I, I want to get to that scene with De Burg because I really want to get to that scene because I, 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 we have to. I don't think we're going to appreciate who Elizabeth is until we get there, because um, is, De Burg is a witch. And Suzanne and I were talking about she. I wish she'd been in the class when he said that. One of her comments was, you know, De Burg does all this stuff. Elizabeth does not respond in spite or. Um, a misplaced anger. Given the things that De Burg, I mean, I can see lots of women, men blowing up. You know, I mean, turning their back and saying, "Get out of here!" I don't, you know. Elizabeth does none of that. She's so even as as um, independent-minded as she is, she still has a sense of proprieties of of um, being careful. De Burg is a witch. But she. Only when she's a sorry, be- say. It. No, no, I'm talking about later when Berg comes to her and visits her and tells her not to marry. I
1: saw her angry, But she wasn't. But she didn't.
0: But it was a. But she never. I, I'm just saying. deburg is. Everything she says is cruel and heartless and mean. I feel
1: that she was very instrumental, in it's beautiful the way Austin played it. She was instrumental in showing Darcy a side of, of that high society yeah. that is not. Yeah. As yes. she ridiculed uh, her mother, Elizabeth's mother, who was another side the other portion of society that was really bad, Yeah at the parties and all the things she said and eating and drinking. And this was the opposite, and it's interesting how those two things kinda of drove the couple
0: Two things.
1: Elizabeth's mother and Catherine Burr I think helped drive the couple together.
0: Yeah, I'm going to read something that makes.
1: Because they were both on the sides of, of the other side, but extreme. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. That made, yes. me, that yeah. made each open their eyes and say, Elizabeth Oberrep said, My mother's ridiculous. And Darcy said, Some of the people in the world are ridiculous.
0: <coughs> yeah, um, yes. Oh, the, the other thing. I'm just while we're on this, we learn too. I'm going to get. The, I want to go there now because I want to get some different views of marriage out here. Um, we learn too from De Burg. This is in the last volume when De Berg learns that Darcy may be interested in Elizabeth, and he, and he comes. She just in. She barges in. She doesn't say nope, She's not announced. She didn't let them know. She comes in like they sh- should treat her like a king or queen. Nobody should say anything. Um, um, it's an imposition on her that, that she has to come and she asks if she can talk with Elizabeth. I mean she's so nobody's there but her in her world. Um, she goes outside with Elizabeth and in, in part of her description she says, this is all planned. Again, a, a woman. My sister and I planned this ages ago. Darcy and my daughter were gonna marry. It's a family thing and it's it's going to it's unite Kimberly and Rosings. So everything that de Bourgh does is for power, control, and, and Darcy's mother was in on it. These two women had it all planned out. So we're watching women who have some real issues with control <laughs> planning all this out. So it's one more view of marriage for us to keep in mind as Jane Austen opens this work. I'm, hap- I'm having a little bit of a concern here because I'm sort of laying bare what, this is a wonderful comic romance, but I think it's it's impossible to read it well and not see. People aren't using good judgments everywhere. They're so often prejudiced and often mean and selfish. Wickham is a, is a deceitful man. The Berg is a, tyrant. Um, so even though this is a, treated as a light comic novel, Jane Austen is giving us probably one of the brutally honest treatments of marriage and a social world that we've ever been given. Jane Joyce, sorry. It,
1: it is, I find it kind of interesting how, you know, oh you look down on Mrs. Bennett that she's trying to get her daughters married to a wealthy but it's like here are these two incredibly wealthy women, and they want to just consolidate the money and the power. And it's like, well, why are you looking down? You know, you're looking down on her, and she's trying to like keep a roof over the family's head, and you guys are, you know, just want to consolidate your power. And but they're not looked down on for that. Yeah. So it's like, oh, well, of course
0: they might do that. Right now, I'm getting a little bit worried because I've, I've always it's
1: yeah.
0: it's. When, you, when I read Jane Austen, I'm aware of a comic spirit running through. The, um, it's rare to see her, she never gets caustic or edgy or, you know, when you read it, you're aware of faults, but we're never meant to feel how dark they are. And right now I feel like we're laying them bare and we're just... <laughs> to Somehow I'd like to get back to the comedy of her and I'm not quite sure how to get there. Here, I'm going to read some things on attitudes towards marriage, so let's go to the text for a minute. Um, on page one eleven, this is in um, this is in chapter twenty um, in the first volume. Um, this is when Collins has proposed to Charlotte, and Charlotte's accepted his proposal. Um, this is on the, in my this is chapter twenty, the second or third page in. Um, very well, we come to the point. Your mother insists upon your accepting. Is it not so, Mrs. Bennett? Yes, sir. I will never see her again. If she doesn't accept Colin, she's never going to talk with her daughter again. <laughs> because she, wa- I mean, it's just so funny. She wants her daughter to be married that much. And, I mean, obviously, she's not a, a woman of good judgment, and we see that so on. But, um, yes, sir, I'll never see her again. That's the mother saying to her daughter. Clearly, she'll talk to her. but. Right now she's upset at the thought that her daughter didn't accept her proposal. An unhappy alternative before you, Elizabeth, from this day you must be a stranger to one of your parents. Your mother will never see you again if you don't marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. <laughs> I mean, there's her, that's the good humor. I mean, you know, you can't, re, have, no matter what's going on, the way she treats it al- allows us to, it, it, I'm not kidding, I'm not trying to push this on you. It so reminds me of uh, Boethius there's no bad fortune. That is so much at the root of, 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 uh, of uh, Austin's soul. Um, and he dismisses his um, his wife again the way he does too often. First that you allow me free use of my understanding of the present occasion. Secondly, of my own room. I shall be glad to have the library to myself as soon as me. He wants to get away from this stuff as soon as he can. We're watching a father. Elizabeth is going to be really critical of her father. Um, and later He's going to have a real coming up. Um, Because of all of it, what he did not do as a father because he was glibly passing things off, you know. Um, Her mother, the mother talks again about her poor nerves and um, so we've got that attitude from, that's just one of the aspects of Mrs. Bennett's attitudes towards marriage. where did you remember? Sorry, um, God bless. When Charlotte, and I don't have it right now. I think it's take, look at 24. I think it's on 24. Um, yeah, this is on the second or third page in on chapter, in chapter six in the first volume. Um, Elizabeth and Charlotte are talking about marriage. So this is early on. It's just you know, it's pure conversation between the two of them. Um, But remember, all of this is taking place amidst balls, because all these balls are being given and it's a chance for men and women to come together sexually to know each other and see if there are prospects there for marriage. Page 24, well said Charlotte, I wish Jane success with all my heart. And if she were married to him tomorrow, I should think she has has as good a chance of happiness as if she were to be studying his character for 12 months. Elizabeth is making the point that Jane's careful and cautious and she's trying to be good. so they're talking about the balls and the different responses between them Bingley's response to Jane, Jane's to his, Darcy's to Elizabeth's. Happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. If the disposition of the parties are ever so well known to each other even so similarly beforehand, it does not advance their felicity in the least. They always continue to grow sufficiently unlike afterwards, to have their share of vexation, and it's better to know as little as possible of the defects of the person with whom you are to pass your life. Do you all agree with that? Heather, you're young. Which means you're, you're young and stupid the way all of us were when we were your age. Come on, what's your, what's your response to that? Would you agree with her? And they're still best friends and it's your mom is still your mom, yeah. right right yeah it's an inconsistency in her but um, where do I want to go sorry where do I want to go with this um, it shows us Charlotte's view and its one view of marriage and I think I think Jane Austen to her credit she know she knows that people are um, gifted differently Collins doesn't have the natural gifts that Elizabeth. Even Charlotte doesn't have the natural gifts. I think you'd all agree, we're all given different gifts. Um, And I think Jane Austen's giving us a view that's meant to be criticized but also accepted as rational. Because for Charlotte to want more would probably be a fault on her part. So even though it's not Elizabeth and Darcy's marriage or Jane and Bigley's, I think we're meant to see it's a good marriage. Elizabeth spends time there. They're married. The thing that I want to take off from, one of the interesting thing that's going, here, and I, I, I want to put this strike. this is not a, um, a um, what do you call it? Christ first, the, it's not a Cana, you know, thing for the church, um, the pre-Cana, but it's gonna seem a pre-Cana thing here. Charlotte's view is not an uncommon view. Lots of people get married, because it's good for them. And they shouldn't be criticized, whatever faults, whatever, short, but it's a good marriage. With Jane and um, Darcy and, and, uh, or sorry, Elizabeth and Darcy and Jane and Bingley, Elizabeth, or, I mean, Austin is doing what Shakespeare did. He's showing that there are degrees of gifts in people and, and, the greatest shortcomings will always show up in the most gifted. Stop and think about that for a minute in light of our comments here. The two most gifted people in the novel are Elizabeth and Darcy. They're the most gifted. They're the ones who undergo the greatest, deepest changes. We don't get into the, I'm gonna say this, I mean, you're, you're young, Heather, but, I, um, but it's something that all of us, you know, reach in our life. Before we're married and we have, you know, have relationships with each other and learn about each other, little things can make a difference. They can be deal breakers. You would say, I don't want to marry this guy. One of the things that we're learning from Jane Austen is one of the things that happens in a marriage isn't ad- I'm not kidding and I'm not kidding in my use of words it's an adventure and a romance you enter into it not knowing what's going to happen but in the case of or in the case of Elizabeth Darcy we're entering into the interior the deepest interior of anybody in the novel and what we're learning is there's lots of things wrong with her when you marry you're taking on the interior of a life when you when you have only got super surface visions of it when you first marry. You've got this image of your wife and think all, all of us idealize each other when we marry. When we enter into a marriage we realize we're taking on the interior of another person when that interior is full of disorders. Elizabeth is the brightest person in the novel and she's prejudiced everywhere. So when marriage takes place it's an adventure because at that point you enter into it. What I love about this novel is we're entering into that interior and because of her charity we're able to love it. I mean, I mean imagine the man who has to live with Elizabeth. She, well, she's becoming a different person. So is Darcy because they're learning to change their insides. When you first marry, you, most of your judgments are based on exterior surface stuff. You don't know that person. I mean, why do so many people say they're in love with each other and a year later, a year later, they're divorced? Because they're obviously learning something about those people they didn't see. So, how prepared is any person to... Here's the thing, when you marry, you're internalizing the interior of another person. How easy is it to to bear the disorders of another person? In love and in the hope of changing both of you. So one of the remarkable things about Jane Austen's novel is they're told from the point of the view of a, of a woman, we enter into that interior. We know Elizabeth from the inside better than anybody. There's a lot that's not right with her, but she changes. So one of the things we're learning because of what Jane Austen does with her point of view is to enter into that interior. To learn to see that there's more going on than surfaces admit. And that's so much about what the novel's about. First impressions, having to go deeper. So, everybody following? Okay, so that's Charlotte's view. Yeah, go. I just feel it's necessary
1: to say that Charlotte's defense is
0: Charlotte, Charlotte. talking about the Bennets?
1: No, the Lucases. Go ahead. She's the oldest daughter of five children. So her two younger brothers will be responsible for her if she doesn't marry. And her younger sisters can't marry until she does or she is hopelessly an early She's making a decision that protects her family. Elizabeth chose the highway road and didn't care about the death yeah. Charlotte does. Yeah. I,
0: I yeah. think
1: when you're looking at what Austen looks at in terms of marriage, that marriage is a pretty conventional marriage for that time. Um, the man's an idiot, the woman is not.
0: Demands it, oh yeah, right. I love I the scene where it
1: comes to visit. And she said, he loves the garden, and I encourage him to the garden.
0: Maybe <laughs> 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 the time the girls an entire day passes, and I believe not spending the time in each other's life. Yeah, here, I want to just, I mean... <laughs>
1: know, to be a good clergyman. That, that and, and that will be, make her successful as well. Isn't it? That, that's you know, she's, yeah, that's she, she wants him to be better.
0: And to have time away from her. And to have time away from her. She's I was going to say, I just don't want to, I hope I didn't, because I, I hope I didn't um, discredit Charlotte, because I was trying to make a point that I think her marriage is a good marriage and that Jane Austen sees it that way. You know, but hold on, hold on, wait, let me just, because I want to, and then, uh, come in, do um, I'm not aware from anything in the novel that Charlotte is as aware of those things as you're making her out to be, because I'm, I'm not, I don't find passages like that, and the other thing to remember, even if that, those were the conventions, Lydia marries first, even though her eldest sister hasn't, so the conventions were there, and they're rigid, Lydia didn't follow. I know, I know, I know, but I, that's why I'm, Suzanne. The the conventions are there, um, and Jane Austen's critiquing them everywhere. I'm just saying I um, I think Charlotte has a good Mary. I hope I didn't misput that because I'm because I think in her terms she did. But I'm but I I think um, we're meant to feel that there is a world of difference between her interior and what moves her and Elizabeth's. you know, and, and her when she's pushing um, Collins out to do things. I don't think that's just self in her, um, selfless on her part to get Collins to become a better man. I think he's hopeless, and I think she knows that. But 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 I, I think there's something self protective in her because he's not. You know, it's not the, it's not Elizabeth and Darcy's kind of marriage. That interior life just isn't there. And I think that's to Jane Austen's credit that she's really she's realistic. She's not idealizing things that she doesn't do that. She's very realist in her way of looking at what goes on between couples but um, Anne, you, sorry Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. In that sense, I mean, just a, yeah, all the points you guys are making are so good. In that sense, it, it, it underscores the point that I was trying to make a, a minute ago, that marriage is an adventure and a romance. I'm saying that honestly, you know, to, to get away from the conventions, this is a romantic book. I, I'm not meaning in that. I'm saying that marriage is an adventure in reality. Because you don't know when you enter into it. Mary didn't. I mean I can't get in clear in that. We enter into an adventure where lots is going to happen that we do, we couldn't predict, we couldn't foresee, we couldn't control. And all those things force on us choices that reveal us to ourselves that shows who we are. I mean romance in that. And in that sense there's not as great an element of romance in Charlotte's life as there is in this is really a romantic novel about Elizabeth And there are degrees of romance coming out from that. And I don't think, Jane Austen is not condemning that. or She's very realistic. She's showing there are degrees of interiority, there are degrees of suffering, of learning. Charlotte, I don't see Collins as a man who's gonna learn very much in his life. He's just, he's so full of himself. Or DeBerg, you know. um, And that's okay in that marriage. Here, I want one more look. Mrs. Gardner, and this is on page um, 142 in my book, it's chapter 3 in the in the, in the first, or in, in volume 2, chapter 3 in volume 2, um, it's Mrs. Gardner cautioning Elizabeth about Wickham and she's saying, um, you want to be careful, seriously I would have you Be on your guard. Do not involve yourself or endeavor to involve him in an affection which the want of fortune would make so very imprudent. I have nothing to say against him. He's the most interesting young man. And if he had the fortune, so a a large major of her concern is the financial well-being of a prospective husband. And she's guarding it. It's just important to see how Austin nuances things like this. Mrs. Gardner is a wonderfully sensible woman. Um, and Elizabeth's going to argue with him or her and in favor of Wickham and she's going to find out Wickham is really a bad guy. That's not the issue here. The issue is fortune and she's going to defend Charlotte on the same basis that she's marrying into some fortune which will make her, you know, Elizabeth's got some inconsistencies in herself. It's just we're made to be aware of them. The last passage I want to read, um, I want to get quickly to Darcy and uh, Collins' proposal. On page 228, this is a shocking passage. I'm getting to it, Doc. Um, This is um, the very last chapter of um, volume two, our volume tonight. This is the last chapter of Volume 2, page 228 in my book, Chapter 19. So remember, she's returned from Hunsford and Rosings. She's experienced the Berg's world. She's entered that world of the old, wealthy, landed class, of which D- Darcy's a product. She knows London. She knows um, um, Meryton, where the balls were held. She knows. Um, Um, Derbyshire, no, what's um, Bingley's place? Heatherfield, sorry, Long. So her whole consciousness has grown out. She's learned to see more of the world. In one sense, it's more Catholic. Her view of things is larger. She sees more. She sees more deeply. This is the person who began the book with her father making fun of the wife with that opening statement saying, it's a truth universally held and we go on. And um, Elizabeth has embarrassed. She's seen her mother embarrass herself in front of Darcy, which makes her, which shows her pride in some sense. Um, There's so much that she's seen by this time. This is the end of volume two, and it begins with these words. Had Elizabeth's opinion been all drawn from her own family, she could not have formed a very pleasing picture of conjugal felicity or domestic comfort. Elizabeth's, or Lydia's off with the regiment. She's come from um, Huntsford. She's seen Charlotte marry. It's a it's a marriage that she didn't sanction at first. In fact, she even says she thinks she's probably gonna lose a relationship, her familiar, the intimacies with Charlotte. They, re, they resume, she picks up, she, she becomes a better person. But here, after having seen what happened with Bingley, thinking Bingley, um, it wasn't good that, that um, Carolyn Bingling is treacherous. Um, she's seen so much to disillusion. All these people who are don't have the integrity that she believes people has. Okay, I hope I'm seeing that. I mean, I'm, I'm doing justice to that she's seen a lot now that's brought her to a point of disillusionment, um, and she's even come to a point where she's seen faults in herself. Okay, and uh, Lydia's off. <coughs> Had Elizabeth's been, been, opinion been drawn from her own family, she could not have formed a very pleasing picture of conjugal felicity or domestic comfort. Remember how much her vision is colored by what Darcy says about her family that she doesn't want to admit in that letter. That when he looked at the things, he couldn't favor things. Um, he'd seen things that left him questioned about whether Bingley would be happily married. Or, I mean, he's got all those things on his mind because he takes those things more seriously than most people. Her father, captivated by youth and beauty and that appearance of good humor, which youth and beauty generally give, had married a woman whose weak understanding and liberal mind had very early in their marriage put an end to all real affection for her. Respect, esteem, and confidence had vanished forever and all his views of domestic happiness were overthrown. But Mr. Bennett was not of a disposition to seek comfort for the disappointment which his own imprudence had brought on in any of those displeasures which too often consoled the unfortunate for their folly or their vice. He was fond of the country and books, so they were escape." So one of the issues is here, how well do people learn to love each other, whatever their faults. Um, Elizabeth, however, had never been blind to the impropriety of her father's behavior as a husband. She had always seen it with pain, but respecting his abilities and grateful for his affectionate treatment of herself, she endeavored to forget what she could not overlook. It goes on and on, but right now, this is from the center of consciousness for the whole novel, we're getting the view of a woman towards her family, her whole family, with some shame. So um, whatever in the way of humility has begun to grow in her, Consider this, when the family learns that Lydia has run off with um, Wickham, that's where we're going in our, I mean that's where we'll focus our attention. Look at Lydia, all that happens to her family, her attitude when she comes back, when she's married, the glibness of her manner with, I mean she has no sense of the effect of her actions on anybody. So Elizabeth, so remember Jane Austen's Christian, she's Anglican, her father's a rector. Um, she's had trouble in her own family, personal problems with members of her own family. So she's not writing about something of which she knows nothing. She knows about this stuff. Here at this point she's, I think it's legitimate to say, she has a real shame for her family. Imagine what she's going to face when the family learns that Lydia has eloped. And, they're not, and she's not married and um, her uncle goes, her uncle goes in search, the father goes in search, and they learn that she will be married. She knows nothing of what Darcy does at that point. Lydia comes home, married, and she gives us one last view of what some people can make of marriage, which is... So, consider the changes that Elizabeth has to make in herself with respect to those in her own family. Um, so she's not facing superficial things. So the world that Jane Austen is introducing us to is not, even though it's a comedy, it's, it's, I really think it's an, it's an understated love. It's a charity. There are dark things going on here. And yet, so first voice, first volume, second volume, um, it's going to end with um, the gardeners taking... Um, Elizabeth to Derbyshire and she's gonna end up in Pemberley and we're left wondering (laughs) what's gonna happen because this is the last note of the second volume it's Lydia I mean Elizabeth looking at her family in shame and she's learned to feel some shame about herself okay so is everybody following there are interesting movements the first volume the second volume and it's all into an interior that's becoming infused with humility. It's changing the way she looks at the world. Okay? Um, I want to just, to, um, quick, to chapter 11 in volume two. Remember that, I want to just set this because it, it sort of sets a tone for where we're going in volume three. Remember when Collins proposed to Elizabeth, He presented himself as this great knight who's saving the family and they should be flattered that he's um, humbling himself to offer himself and he does it knowing that he's going to save them from entail. So the tendency of people to use other people as objects and justify what they're doing as if it's really good when it's not because he's an arrogant, selfish, ignorant man. And I, and I don't want to, Charlotte's a good woman, you know, Jane, in Jane Nelson's mind, that's a good marriage because we're not all born, you know, with Elizabeth's gifts or Darcy's gifts, so she's very realistic about the marriage. And she's also very real about what goes on that's not good. Lydia's behavior and the father's res- responsibility, his part in that, not small. Here, on, I'm going to quit with this. This is Darcy when Elizabeth has come to Huntsford, and so she's been introduced to Lady de Berg's world and Collins' world. And by the way, I spoke to this before. The irony of this, I, I hope nobody will ever forget that, because I don't hear critics mentioning this. Um, Collins is the English church. He's, a, he's the pastor of a church, he's got to write sermons. He's under de Berg's thumb. The origins of that fact are, is the Reformation, where the Protestant world made an accommodation to the world to compromise itself so that it was under its thumb. We're watching, we're experiencing the fallout of that three century, two, what is it, two and a half centuries later. Is everybody following? He's a pastor. He's got a, he's got a living. He owes it all to her. What kind of independence of mind can he have? How can he speak to the center of Christianity from that position? We're watching a man who fawns on her, who does everything for her, and he's the leader pastor of a congregation. So we saw that proposal and we saw how ridiculous it is. So we've got that against against which to measure what happens in volume 2 when Darcy comes to Elizabeth to make his proposal. This is in chapter 11. She's aware that Darcy's been paying attention to her. She doesn't know what to make of it because she dislikes him so deeply. She hates him at this point. And they've been coming and, you know, Fitzgerald and Darcy have been meeting there at Hunsford and so she's spending time with him. Um, They have been to the Burgs and, and suddenly Darcy makes this appearance out of nowhere. And he enters the room. He sat down for a few moments, and then getting up, walked about the room. Elizabeth was surprised, but said not a word. After a silence of several minutes, he came towards her in an agitated manner, and speak began." I mean to go to what all of you guys have been saying about Darcy. Proud, self-sufficient, looking down, um, not finding anybody worthy. And what was his comment? What was that quote, Heather? When I've lost? Forever. <laughs> So he's pacing. He, he, that's how hard it is to bring himself to this moment. In vain I have struggled, it will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. He's make the heart cannot be denied. Whatever's going on socially, whatever the world has done to his consciousness, there's something at the center of his heart. This is sort of amazing. The world's conventions cannot deal with. It. He's coming against everything in him. Uh, It will not do, my feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. (sighs) Elizabeth's astonishment was beyond, I mean, what can be said at this? I mean, what could she feel except an overwhelming astonishment? She stared, colored, doubted, was silent. This he considered sufficient encouragement, so he goes on. In spite of her deeply rooted dislike, she could not be insensible to the compliment of such a man's affection. And though her intention did not vary for an instant, she was at first sorry for the pain to receive. She, he was to receive. To roused to resentment by his subsequent language, she lost all compassion and anger. She tried, however, to compose herself to answer him with patience when he should have done. He concluded with representing her to the strength of that attachment which, in spite of all of his endeavors, he had found impossible to conquer. So you can, we don't get this in dialogue. It's a, It's third person. It's being described. But we, we know his words. As he said this, she could easily say that he had no doubt of a favorable answer. He, he spoke of apprehension and anxiety, but his countenance expressed real security. I think that's going to go well with her. <laughs> Such a circumstance could only exasperate farther and when he ceased the color rose into her cheeks and she said, in such a case as this it is I believe the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiment avowed. However unequally they must be returned. It's natural that obligation should be felt. And if I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you, but I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion and you have certainly stood it most unwillingly. I'm sorry to have occasion pain to anyone. It has been most unconsciously done, however, and I hope will be of short duration. I think she's being genuine. She knows this is going to hurt him. The feelings which you tell me have long prevented the acknowledgement of your regard can have little difficulty in overcoming it after this explanation. Darcy wasn't prepared for any of this. And this is all the reply which I am to have the honor of expecting. I might perhaps wish to be informed why with no subtle endeavor at civility I am thus rejected, but it's of no small importance. I mean, he's trying to brush off a real wound, I think. Um, and then she tells him of his insults, um, her belief that she stood in the way of Bingley and uh, um, Jane coming together, which has been a real concern for her. And um, she goes on with this, and of your infliction, cried Elizabeth with energy, you have reduced him to his present state of poverty. Because she had this story from Wickham that he, Darcy had mistreated Wickham and she believed him. And we talked about that she, that Wickham would have admitted those things on a first meeting and she would have believed that without knowing him. So um, she, she sees him as a bad man because of his tre- mistreatment of Wickham. So there's nothing to say to his advantage in her mind, nothing. And this, cried Darcy, as he walked with quick steps across the room, in your opinion of me, this is the estimation in which you hold me. I thank you for explaining it so fully. My faults, according to this calculation, are heavy indeed, but perhaps, added he, stopping in his walk and in tor- turning towards you, these offenses might have overlooked had not your pride been heard, by my honest (coughs) confession of the scruples that had long prevented my forming any serious design. These bitter accusations might have been suppressed had I with greater policy concealed my struggles and flattered you into the belief of my being impelled. Now he's answering her pride and he is not at ease. I mean, he's, a, he's really angry at this point. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence, nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections, to congratulate my, uh, myself on the hope of relations whose conditions in life so decidedly beneath my own? Let me stop for a minute. Remember what I said earlier how easy it is for people of an inferior class to misjudge somebody of a higher class because he's higher. There's a, And I'm not defending Darcy's arrogance, he's a proud man. But he's got a lot to take care of that people don't understand and they've misunderstood everything about him and Wickham. And Will Wickham is going around telling these stories to give her a different opinion. So over and over and over again we're left with our awareness of first impressions and how often they go wrong. He's just declared himself she has blatantly refused him openly and left him with his sense of honor injured and walking away. And you know what will happen the next day, he will come with his letter laying out, because he he takes seriously being accused he thinks of himself as a just man and an honorable man that he takes those things seriously. So what he does in his letter is answer those things to to make clear to her things that she doesn't know but we know at this point um, he's humbled because he's he's offered himself and all that he represents has been rejected he's humbled the next day she will get that letter she will be humbled that's the end of or towards the end of 2 we know at the end of 2 she and her aunt and uncle are going to Derbyshire and end up at Pemberley and we're left wondering what will happen. So I hope that uncovers. There's a lot about human relationships that she is brilliant in uncovering. And she does it with a charity that is rare. So even though I did not want to do this novel, I'm grateful to all of you that we can do this and I think the best is still ahead of us because what happens in volume three is nothing short of well you might call it a miracle and we're going to have to call it something but it's astonishing. So we've got first volume, voice one, the counterpoint, volume two, now we're going to look at um, things are going to get worse Okay, because nobody knows at this point what Lydia's doing. We will discover she's gone. It will throw the family into turmoil and shame. And it's going to increase Elizabeth's shame in her family, herself, her embarrassment, the way she looks at Darcy. So we're watching everybody learning to see the world differently. Okay. Excellent. See you all next week. Yeah, it, it really is good seeing you. I, If you haven't read it, in one, you might just reread, you know, volume three. It's not long, it's painful. It, it really is, to watch this. The father have to have a reckoning, you know. Um, Lydia, what she's doing, and all that happens between Darcy and Elizabeth, showed the, the best of everything woman, feminine, and everything masculine. Okay, sorry, (laughs) Melody, are you still here? I'm so sorry. Did we get on? Were we on with her? Can you? Because it. Oh, Melody, do you have any questions or comments? No. Okay. That's what she says. Is that it? Oh, I'm sorry about all the audio stuff, and I'm sorry that I didn't. But I, I hope you're. I'm, I'm remembering your comment and how much I was enjoying it because. In the first volume you're looking at all of this ridiculous stuff but he gets deeper and deeper and deeper so I I hope you finish the novel I did I I can't does that the volume Can you speak up a little bit? Yeah. Say again. Did you hear that, Mike? She said uh, after reading uh, Darcy's letter to Elizabeth, she was hooked and she finished the book in short order. Yeah, yeah, good. Good, I'm glad. I hope you enjoyed it. Good. Okay, okay. God.
1: The computer audio on the speakers oh, uh, we used to have wait that wait sorry Louisiana. wait Oh, sorry do no.